You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. This is an interview that I did with Nancy Andrews. She is the creative force behind the film and eventual web series, The Strange Eyes of Dr. Mize. Highly recommend that you check that out and enjoy this interview. My work is revolutionary. We can go beyond the now we know. Enter fields of eternal seeing. Enter fields of eternal feeling. Listen, I, I must move forward with my work. You will thank me when the Nobel Assembly calls. Sorry, Dr. Mize. I guess things got a little out of hand. I am sorry, too. know a little bit about your background. Can you tell me um, how you got into filmmaking and was that your first love? Well, I got into filmmaking early on because my dad was a avid Super 8 uh, movie shooter. So, you know, every birthday, holiday, blah, 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 the camera came out. And I think somewhere in elementary school, I started realizing that I could commandeer the camera and do some little animations. Not sure how I figured out how they were done. Um, but I did a little bit of that. And then in college, I wanted to do filmmaking and I did do some, but it was back in the day when art schools didn't have too much film and video. I took some, you know, production courses and uh, film history courses. And actually, I was in Baltimore. So one of my first teachers was Dave Inslee, who was John Waters' VP. And then um, I started doing performance art 
and video was sort of my day job. I worked in a children's hospital making videos with kids in the hospital, and I learned a lot about production, the sort of practical side of communicating and using media. And then I went to graduate school in Chicago at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and, and started um, doing more animation on a 16 millimeter and video art mixed with performance. So it's been a slow evolution uh, to doing sort of films that are sort of standalone films. The first uh, piece that I did that was performance mixed with video was called, uh, let me see if I get the title right, it was called Squirrel Finds a Live Nut. And it unfolded a little bit unexpectedly. I was doing, I'd written a little bit of a story and written some songs about a girl who's lost in the forest and raised by squirrels. And as part of my research, I thought, well, I should get some squirrel sounds so I could kind of make a soundscape that might be part of some of the songs. So I contacted the Smithsonian and I asked for, you know, someone in the squirrel department. <laughs> and I got this woman on the phone and I explained in broad strokes. I said, I'm making a performance and it's about a girl who's lost in the forest and raised by squirrels. And she said, well, that could never happen. And I said, yeah, I know it's fiction. And she said, it could never happen because it would be too much work for the squirrels. And she started going into great detail about how much they would have to get in terms of food. And I mean, I, it, I said, could I come interview you? And that, um, so I interviewed her on video. And then I found another squirrel expert who is a world-renowned squirrel expert from the BBC. You know, if the BBC wanted a squirrel expert, this is the guy they would go to. And he happened to live in Maryland, not too far from me. So I went and interviewed him. And when I got to his house, he opened the door and he said, I love fairy tales. Would you like some sticky buns? And then he went on to explain to me how squirrels could sort of inherit the world because they had 10 digits and they could use our computers and with that kind of material, I mean, who could resist putting that into the performance? I would have part of the performance unfold as sort of onstage storytelling and songs and then go to these video clips. And that became kind of the model for a number of pieces that I did that were um, mixes of songs and narrative and film. But the film chain was as they went on, become became less documentary and more animation, more fantastical. How would you describe your animation style? Like, what do you use for animating? I know some people still use, you know, cell animation. Some people use computer animation. How has that happened for you, and how has it changed over the years? So, The Strange Eyes of Dr. Mize is the first fully digital project that I've done. So, everything else... Uh, before that, I was mostly collecting images on film, even if I ended up doing the edit in, on digital. Um, I was doing film transfers and then doing the digital. So that was quite different um, as an approach because when you shoot film, you really have to get it right. Like there's no fixing it. You know, if it's not the, the right thing, you, you have to do it again. And you don't get to see what you're doing when you're shooting and it's a latent image. So you kind of have to hold a lot in your head and really get a sense of timing that's almost in your body. And so it's been really interesting to have more. I still use a lot of the same 
techniques, but the, I'm using digital kind of collection, if you want to call it that. I'm shooting it digitally so I can see what I just shot. I can play it back. Um, the techniques I'm using are still more classic, like under the camera. I'm using real materials to a great degree still. So I'm not doing 3D modeling and not using flash. You know, it's it's like pieces of paper being moved around under the camera, basically. How did uh, Behind the Eyes Are the Ears come about? That came about after watching uh, The Man with the X-Ray Eyes. And I really just felt fascinated with that film and some sort of affinity with it. And it inspired me to write some songs. I wrote, I looked at the film and I thought, kind of has this sort of like, uh, I sort of broke it down into headings, almost like sections, you know, and uh, wrote a song to what I thought was sort of each stage of the narrative. So I think I wrote maybe six songs. And then I started working on a film based on those songs. And uh, yeah, that was pretty much how that, that unfolded. I played the main character and she was a scientist who was experimenting with adding mostly insect senses to the human senses. And then, um, i trying to remember how exactly it unfolded, but she ended up in jail and then escaped from jail and was on the loose, I think, at the end of the film. But it's done in an experimental narrative way, so it's not as clear. Uh, like there's no dialogue, for example. So, yeah, it's not sort of as most of my other films are not very plot-driven. I guess we could argue about whether even The Strange Eyes of Dr. Mize is very plot-driven, but it's, it's my effort at, at having something a little more plot-driven. I think I'm most interested in characters, and uh, that's a common thread for me is developing characters and less about plot. So you played Dr. Mize in the first version of this, let's say. And then how did you meet Nicole Brianna White? Well, I had never met Nicole until the first day on set. I cast her based on watching her performance in I Will Follow and watching other things with her in them and talking to her on the phone. And um, yeah. It's sort of a, a funny story because I didn't have money to hire a casting director. So, and I live on an island in Maine. So, you know, I knew I wanted a, a pro actress at the center of the film, you know, who could really handle the role and could sing and everything. But, and I, I wanted a woman of color in that role. And I live in like the whitest state in the country, I think, <laughs> you know. So, um, I cast a pretty, broad net by using the, the internet as, as a way to try to identify someone who would be good in the role. So this is the feature we're talking about. After the short was complete, what's the length of time between the short and then deciding that you're going to make a feature out of this? So I made the short, I think I finished it maybe 2010, I'm going to say. And then I did a comic book and I was on sabbatical for a couple months and I had like a couple weeks left of my sabbatical and I finished the comic book it had gone to press and I when I did the short I was the first thing that I'd done that I thought wow I just really could see this as like a 
feature length. Like my dream was to have it at like the drive-in movie theater. What would be the perfect venue, you know? And but I'd never written a screenplay, so I thought, okay, I've got a couple weeks. I'm going to write a screenplay and just see where it goes. And I called my friend Jennifer Reeder, who who I've known her for years, and you know we're colleagues and and friends. And I said, uh, you know, I want to work on the screenplay. I don't really know how you write a screenplay. And she said, we'll get this book and write a draft, and then I'll read it and give you notes. So that's pretty much how how it went. And writing it was just it felt supernatural. It just sort of I mean. It felt very natural. Just like you people say, it takes years to write a screenplay. And maybe I should have taken longer, but I pretty much wrote it in just a few weeks. Then you decide to, what, self-fund it? This was all through Kickstarter. No, first I um, started trying to, I thought I would find a producer, um, someone to put up the money for it. And I I had a couple of friends that tried to help me out um, who, you know, were sort of known filmmakers that, you know, passed it on to a producer um, or, you know, a producer who gave me advice was Jim Stark, who who produced Down by Law and some of the early Jarmusch stuff. And I hadn't met him. I just sort of, he was like, I had somebody connected me with him and he was really kind to, to talk to me on the phone and or Skype or something. And he said, you know, as your first feature, nobody's going to give you the money to do it. You have to do your first feature, and then maybe someone will give you money to do the second one. He said, you know how to make a film. You've been making films for years. Just do it. And that was when I decided, well, I guess I'm going to have to see if I can crowdfund it and what's the least amount of money I can make this thing for, you know? So I shaved the budget down to, I don't know, fifty or $60,000. Which is, you know, kind of absurd. <laughs> Not very much money, you know. And then I started working with a guy named Peter West who had done a little bit of documentary production and happened to be living here at the time. And um, he put his energy into it and he helped me do the um, Kickstarter. And we raised, I think, about 45000 to the Kickstarter. And then I was able to get I had 10000 of my own money, and then we were able to get a couple of individual donors to work and put some money up. And I think the overall budget, like including air posts and everything, was like 80000 You're not supposed to tell people that, are you? I don't know. <laughs> What's the wisdom on that? You know, do you admit how little you're able to make it for? That Yeah, that's impressive to make a feature-length film at that amount of money. And then to cast it with the internet and not even have met your main actress in the flesh beforehand. That's, that's pretty ballsy. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, um, you know, maybe it's having done performance art for all those years, but I tend to just sort of try to move ahead of until I'm blocked, you know, like playing chess, you just keep moving until you can't go anymore. You know, how did you balance shooting this film with your regular job? Did you have to take another sabbatical or how did that go? I did the fundraising while I was teaching, which was incredibly challenging. And then stupidly, because I didn't, you know how, I guess sometimes being naive can work in your favor because you end up doing things that anyone who's experienced would would just laugh about. You know, you can't do that. I finished teaching 
like June 5th or 6th, and we started shooting like two weeks later, you know. So we were doing all the pre-production while I was teaching full-time, and then we shot it for 18 days, you know, once I had, like, a couple weeks after I finished teaching, you know, during the summer. And uh, luckily, I had just such a fantastic... After the first day of shooting, I, like, called the crew together, and I just started crying. I was so thankful for their you know, their work. They're just, it was just a fantastic crew. This wasn't just some first time indie thing that nobody saw because you ended up being able to submit this and have it play at festivals all over the place. I wish I had done more in festivals. We were incredibly fortunate to have premiere at Rotterdam, which if people don't know, Rotterdam is one of the you know top festivals in the world. Um, I sort of thought a lot of people would sort of fall in line, like, well, Rotterdam took it, so, you know, we'll take it. But it was really tough, actually. I mean, I got a lot of rejections um, that, you know, from L.A. Film Festival, San Francisco, you know, South by Southwest, like Tribeca, like, we didn't get in any of what I consider like sort of like bigger American festivals. We did get into a really fantastic festival in Poland. And um, we did sort of the some what I consider a little bit smaller festivals in the U.S. Um, but I think it was it's kind of a different form, you know. Like it's not just a different story; it's a different form because of the mix of things. And I just think it was maybe too awkward for for like in L.A. or Tribeca. You know. How close is what the feature was to what we're seeing as webisodes on the website? Well, we didn't just cut it into pieces. I went back um, with Paul Hill, who edited um, with me, the um, editor that, that edited the feature, and did a full, like, re-edit. So, I mean, there's sections that are the same, but we brought in um, lots of new material that we had shot and not used in the feature, I also got rid of sections that were great, but I just, I felt like in a webisode, you really need to keep things moving. And, you know, so the pacing is different. I thought of the film as being very immersive, something you would go to a theater. We did surround sound mix, you know, seeing on a big screen, really kind of get absorbed in the world of it. Um, I thought of it almost like a psychedelic experience I wanted to have people to have. And I knew that that wasn't really possible on the internet. I had to accept that people might watch it on a phone. And so I wanted, that's why I didn't want the film just to get released on the internet because I didn't want people to watch the film on a phone. But so I, when we re-edited, um, it was with that form in mind and really wanting to make something that it would be okay if somebody watched it on the phone, you know. We did a stereo mix, and what I was surprised me is I really had fun doing it. I was kind of dreading it in some way because, you know, making the film, I probably other people have this experience, like things don't always turn out the way you think they will, like sound good on paper, but then when you get it into editing, you're like, oh, that scene just isn't working or you know, so things change, and so I had certain narrative problems that I felt like I never was able to solve in the feature, and I was dreading that going into the web series, but it was really ended up being more natural to me to make these shorter segments, and 
in a way suited more my narrative sensibility because I think in webisodes, people or episodic work, the viewer is able to kind of like suspend certain things. Like they don't need to feel like everything's tied up at the end of every episode or even at the end of the season. Like they're okay with there being kind of like open threads. And so I really enjoyed doing the shorter form. And I, in a way, I think it's more successful than the feature in terms of the way the narrative unfolds. And what brought about that decision to to make these webisodes as opposed to, you know, releasing it on DVD or doing the VOD route? I mean, it's a very, um, again, it's an interesting choice to do. And I think it works, having seen the episodes, they work great as episodes. So I'm just curious how you went from when you're releasing it to festivals and hopefully traveling around with it to coming to the decision to make this very, uh, it's a great site, by the way, not only does it tell you, does it showcase the movie, but then it gives you so many other things that are, I don't want to say equally as interesting, but still very interesting. Yeah. Our goal was to make a really rich um, website so that it could, we could add to the richness of the experience so that you could watch the episodes, but then you might be able to find out other things. So I want to be able to continue to build things in that way. Um, but so we showed it at Rotterdam and when you showed a big festival like that, sales agents contact you and they say, we'd like to see your film. And so then for my, I was like, awesome. Like I'm going to get a sales agent and they're going to sell my film. And instead people watched it and either didn't get back in touch with me or got back in touch with me and said, this has little to no commercial value. Again, I was sort of naive. I thought people want to see new things. They're going to want to see this like thing that's like really different than anything they've ever seen. And instead I found out that, no, that's not really what people are looking for. They're looking for genre-based stuff, things that feel familiar, things that follow a tried and true path. Again, I didn't really want it to live on the internet. I didn't really see any, I don't think people are really buying DVDs. I would have to self-distribute. I really didn't see any theatrical possibilities for that. So it was either just let it die away and keep it in the vault to haul out occasionally when somebody wanted to screen it or try this other route. And it with the, you know, using the internet, like sort of, Self, it gives you the power as an artist to put some things out there. It's it's certainly not easy to get people to watch them, however, you know. But at least it's there, you know, and people can do have a chance to watch it if they can find it. So. Tell me a little bit more about the website, because one of the things that I really enjoyed is the section called The Science Behind. Something that I think I've always done for any of my films, like the, I described to you, you know, if I was doing a film that involved a girl being raised by squirrels and I wanted to find out about squirrels, right? And that's always been a very fun part to me about being a filmmaker because I have a lot of interests and I can explore those interests. You know, if I'm making a film about a librarian, I'm going back and reading library journals from the, you know, Association of Librarians from 1950s and finding material in there. So I like doing the kind of research aspect of it. And I try to, in this film, I really relate to real science stuff that's going on. And uh, 
there's still more I want to do in building that aspect of the site. So what's there right now is is giving people more information about how various animals like dolphins and there's a skink, a blue tongue skink in the film, like how these different animals and insects perceive the world. Because that's one of the main ideas in the series is that we think we're sort of, uh, you know, egocentric. We think we humans know what are, is, is going on because we, uh, you know, I saw it, I heard it, I smelled it, and therefore I know it, you know. Um, and we don't really think about that other humans may perceive things differently, much less there's a whole lot of other creatures out there. You know, it's like the idea of seeing another color. You know, it's hard to imagine what, how these other creatures see the world and are they any less right than we are because they see it differently you know and it's hard to imagine that because it's very like you try to imagine a, a color you've never seen you can't really imagine that but that was, what was one of the ideas i was interested in exploring in the film and so what i like that you set that up so early in the narrative when dr mize is addressing the classroom and talking about just the smelling powers and the hearing powers of dogs compared to people. It's a nice way to kind of introduce that and take us into that. Because I think a lot of, I mean, you're, you're a pet owner. Like, don't you ever think about like, boy, what, what is my dog thinking? Or what are they, I mean, to use that word sort of broadly, but what, how are they perceiving this moment? You know, what would it be like to be inside their head? And I think most pet owners think about that, right? Like, so it seemed like a good way to, help the audience think about that. I kind of actually love the episodic nature of these, especially seeing those opening credits, kind of how they change from one to the next, the way that the uh, we have the coming up on um, little vignettes at the end. Those opening credits, when you the titles or the, the spider web is being made, is that your hands doing that? No, that's a woman named Robin Owings, who's a former student of mine and uh I knew she was a good crocheter, and I asked her to come over one day and shoot that. So those are her hands. I'm not a good crocheter. I don't know how to crochet a web. But we had, the funny part is, is that sequence, uh, Paul Hill and I had edited as the beginning to the feature, and um, along with a lot of other stuff, and everyone kept saying, it seems like there's two title sequences going on here. So we ended up cutting that section out of the feature. So we already sort of had it in the can. Um, I just wrote new music for it and um, we did a little bit of trimming and whatever to it, but it was sort of fortunate we had already pretty much it was already shot in there when we did the episodic. And I always loved that about TV shows growing up. You know, like, I love the openings of shows. They've, they've often cut them out now. I guess they think audiences get bored. I never get tired of watching the same opening sequence like week after week or show after show. Yeah, it's weird now where it's just like a title card and then the credits roll over the actual show itself. And I'm like, no, show me the Fall Guy or the A-Team or MASH or something where you have almost a full song yeah. at the beginning with all the actors I'm about yeah, to see. Yeah, I love that too. I mean, I did hold back because obviously in a, like nine minutes, uh, episode you can't have it be too long and and uh we couldn't i couldn't really name the characters and the actors at the same time i think it wouldn't have really unfolded so the, unfortunately they 
get named at the end of the show. But. Tell me a little bit about the other people that worked on this with you. Tell me about your crew. So um, an, another former student who's a cinematographer and digital image technologist in L.A. Um, was a DP. And um, you know, he had graduated and gone to graduate school and was out in L.A., um, had been working out there for a number of years. And so he and I knew each other quite well. And uh, he's from Nepal. He's just a lovely, lovely person, incredible artist, and uh, someone who really looks through the lens as an artist looks through the lens. You know, he's just so into the color and the lighting. So he and the camera operator, Eve Cohen, had gone to graduate school together. And I had never met Eve before this. But the two of them, he said, I will only do the film if I can have Eve be the camera operator. So we got her on board. And the two of them did all the lighting. We rented a truck of lights from New York and drove them up here and they they did the lighting, so we didn't have the camera operator and the cinematographer setting up all the lights. And Rohan, the DP, also did the coloring. And he, you know, the, what you're seeing on the web, he did to sort of suit the web. But if you ever get to see the film, the the coloring in that is just it's just incredible. It's so deep, you know. Well, and it's just so visually interesting. You always have something going on, and those. The use of the animation, I have to say, is just breathtaking. And that, again, you introduce that so early on, and it's just always such a treat when there are those animated sequences. And the way that they interplay with the narrative is wonderful as well. Thank you. I love doing the, the animation. I think I'm more suited to being in a studio, not not with a bunch of people, you know, around so much, you know, like... Uh, and I work with other animators, but um, it's very different than the pressure of being on set. You know, it's a little more, li- bit more leisurely, and you can take a lunch break whenever you want. And you know, it's just, it's a very different pace and uh, set of priorities. So I think that's my more natural spot. And my other kind of sweet spot is when we were able to shoot things like the swim scene, where I didn't have to worry about dialogue, and like it's just like purely visual. I mean, I think that's my thing is the visual stuff and the sound. I mean, I love sound. So, How was it working with the actors? And because again, you have some amazing performances yeah. in here. Well, I, I, it was new to me. I had never, I'd never even been on a film set and then there, my first film set, I'm the director. Right. So I sort of took the attitude that the pro actors, at least, you know, knew a hell of a lot more about acting than I did. So I wasn't going to tell them how to act, you know. So I would just try to sort of help them when they asked for it, really, more than anything else, you know. And Nicole and I really talked a lot on the phone to help develop her character. And she uh, had had to laugh because one time we were talking on the phone about the character and she started describing the character and I just had to laugh because she was describing me. You know, but she never met me, and it was just like I didn't realize that much of the, you know, had how you do things, and you don't realize that it's in a way about yourself, you know. Um, so she's just—I mean, I—I I just feel so lucky that Nicole took the role, and we've grown very, very close since that time. We're writing together um, now. Um, 
the episodes going forward from the end of this season and developing the ideas a little bit differently. And um, I I feel like our sensibilities really complement each other. Um, the, you know, they say that you shouldn't collaborate with someone that looks like you in the mirror. You know, you should collaborate with someone that's very different. And I feel like we're, we bring very different skills to the table. But what we have in common is that we're both at heart, I think, improvisers. So we're very much yes and kind of people. And uh, so writing together is just super fun. We write long distance on the phone, sharing a document, either Google or uh, other like script writing, sharing document. And uh, it's just loads of fun. Well, yeah, that was my next question was when will we see more of Dr. Mize? Well, we've written a pilot a half-hour pilot moving into a bit, little bit longer form, and we've outlined a season, and now we're looking for funding. Um, the thing is, I, I can't go back and do another... I don't think I can do another production at such a low cost. You know, I feel like I called in my favors, you know, and uh, next time I'm going to have to have a little bit um, of real production um, support, real money. I mean, I think it's great the people that are able to, like Issa Rae, you know, she did a lot of uh, awkward black girl episodes um, before she got a show on HBO. And, uh, you know, I respect her immensely for her follow through with with all the work that she did on that. Um, That said, I mean, I think a lot of webisodes are a little bit simpler in the sense of like they're a lot of the scenes are maybe two people talking in a room, you know, and uh, the stuff that we're doing, um, especially going forward, is like a lot of it takes place like underwater or then there's a dance number, you know, and it's just it's a different kind of production. So it's sort of hard to imagine doing that. It's just like, you know, oh, I'm just going to do this every week with me and a couple of friends and a camera. I don't think it's the same kind of show. So. <laughs> no, no. It the, <laughs> Strange Eyes of Dr. Mize is so polished and you can just feel that those feature roots to it because yeah, this just the production value of it is just amazing. When I saw it, I was like, this is a web series. And before I read the background on it, I couldn't believe it cuz I'd never seen a web series that looked as no, good. Well, as thanks. This. I mean, that's definitely what I wanted. I wanted that attention to color and and lighting and sound and it's hard to have that and never go backwards i mean i think there's some fantastic stuff and you know i'm i love lots of stuff that doesn't have that same kind of production value but for this particular show i can't imagine doing a lower production value i guess i think our big challenge right now is building the audience for what's out there now because uh the more we can build an audience for the the current uh, season, that's going to be much easier to get people on board to help us, you know, pay for the second season. So that's what we're up against right now is trying to get eyes on it. Be they strange or yeah, not? Yeah, well, we hope they're a little strange. Thank you too for putting some of the music out on the site because it is also fantastic. So I'm really glad to uh, be able to participate and, and listen to the songs offline as well as on. Well, that's great. I'm glad you found that that feature. You know, 
because we didn't go into debt doing the film, at least, you know, I mean, we didn't certainly didn't make any money either, but my policy has just been trying to just say, okay, we're going to give it away for free, at least this time, you know. And I, I feel like one of the beauties of the digital media is that you can try to give things away for free and people really enjoy getting things for free. But on the other hand, I feel like we're missing a link because everyone wants so much for free, but then we haven't really solved how those things are going to get paid for especially the things that aren't mainstream. As somebody who does a cult film podcast, I completely yeah. understand. So I think it's a, it's, a, it's a problem. I don't know how it will get solved. I mean, I think all of us are willing to do a certain amount uncompensated, but you can only do so much that way. And then you start running into certain walls. So, I mean, I've got a day job. You've got a day job probably, right? I mean, and you can do creative stuff you know, if a podcast doesn't cost very much, maybe you can sustain that um, for a number of years. But with the cost of film production, you start getting to a point where it's just like, I don't know, how can I do the next one? I mean, look at someone like John Waters, who such a successful person, but he can't get the kind of backing he needs to make another film. Like, what's wrong with that picture? You know, how can that be? Yeah, I have one friend who says that he's a uh, full-time fundraiser, yeah. part-time director. Yeah, I can relate to that. Well, Nancy Andrews, thank you so much for your time tonight. Once again, folks need to go over to The Strange Eyes of Dr. Mize. That's M-Y-E-S, and we will have a link over to that at the website, projection-booth.com. So, Nancy, I hope that you uh, stay warm up there in Maine, and I hope that the coyotes don't get you. I know. Well, thank you so much for the for talking with me, and it was nice to meet you over the airwaves.
oh my god, can you hear that? Hold on a sec. <laughs> I, I got to put the phone near the window so you can hear this. Oh, it just dropped the coyotes. I haven't heard them for a while. Yeah, it was kind of spooky. Can you hear them? Like... Hear them? Wow, yeah. <laughs> that is spooky. <laughs> I I don't know if I've ever heard coyotes. No? Yeah, well, they, they become more and more uh, prevalent up here. And um, they kind of must travel around because they... You know, for months I don't hear them, and that's the first time I've heard them in a long time. 